All right, I think uh, we are live. Uh, welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are doing a Bob Enyart tribute episode. And for this episode, we are going to be playing part two of his Predestination and Free Will CD. And so I, I got the little screenshot on screen here of uh, where this can be found. And I'll post an invite link also in the comments. So if anyone wants to jump on and talk about any memories or anything that we're just going over or any theology, uh, anything uh, would be welcome. And so I'm posting the link now in the comments and we're gonna go ahead and get started. This is his understanding, his take about Romans 9. So real quick, this... This uh, predestined and free will series, I've, I've listened to quite a few times. And so it's burned in my memory how he starts his CD number one. He says, your, mo your mother wears army boots. Your mom wears army boots. And uh, he is, he's, he's trying to get the impression, trying to maybe get a shock reaction or try to get people to uh, understand that times change, perceptions change, and um, things that we might think are bad in one generation are not bad in another generation. And he, he offers this as a frame for those who might dislike open theism, offers it as a frame, uh, asking them to consider maybe, maybe our views can change. Maybe what's an insult uh, yesterday is not an insult tomorrow. And that's how he starts off this series. But I do think he does a pretty good job on Romans nine on his uh, this the second seed the the whole the whole uh, lecture the whole class uh, seminar is is worth watching worth uh, not watching it's the audio so worth listening to. Oh, uh, all right. So apparently uh, the sound's not playing on that. We are going to go uh, try to do that again. Remove, share, um, video file. Yeah, chapter 65, it's all about the descendants brought forth from Jacob. Can you hear that? Now, now is the audio working? No. Yes. Maybe. All right. Isaiah chapter sixty-five. It's all about the descendants brought forth from Jacob and from Judah. Isaiah sixty-five nine. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah, my elect. Right, my elect. Verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord. 
Therefore, you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but you did evil before my eyes, and you chose that in which I do not delight. So I do like how Bob Enyart, he, he takes the concepts such as election, elect, and he goes through the Bible to see how it's used and points out pretty emphatically that the elect go to hell. And so when you're dealing with the Calvinist, um, getting them just to admit that the elect goes to hell um, is, is a huge, huge step in, in breaking down their mental barriers. Yeah, you know, they'll counter like, well, that's about national election and not individual election. Well, well, okay, can you still answer the question, do the elect go to hell? Oh, we could start dealing with individuals later. Um, uh, you could show me whatever you need to show me that individuals who are elect do not go to hell. But can we just agree on the concept, the simple concept that the elect do go to hell in the Bible? And then because what they want to do is they want to assume it's, it's a special pleading thing. It's like, oh, individuals are elected and this elected means that you you must uh, be saved or go to heaven or something like that. But they don't have evidence for this view. They elect throughout the Bible. People who are chosen fall away. They break away. Uh, they die in unbelief in the wilderness. That's that's one of Bob Enyard's phrases that I think he, he uses it here. We'll, we'll get to that. Who's God saying that to? To Jacob, his elect. My elect. I chose you. I called you. But you have rejected me. And now I'm going to punish you. Because when I called you, you did not answer. The chosen people went to hell. <laughs> the elect nation rejected Jesus Christ. That's Look, the story of the Bible. So Bob Enyart is really good at uh, emphasizing certain, the, the tonality of his voice, the voice inflections. He's really good when he's interacting with people, emphasizing his points using just pauses in, in his normal speaking ability. And so that, that phrase right there, the elect go to hell, it's the way he says it to emphasize the point, I think, I think it's pretty powerful. I think it, it works very well to get through to people's uh, psyches. The elect perished. Romans 9 is all about God choosing and electing. Now, the Calvinists consider this chapter their heavy artillery. And they're right. It's the heavy artillery aimed right at them. <laughs> I, I, I love it how he tells this like cheesy boomer joke and then like his whole audience is like kind of laughing. He's like, ah, we got the artillery aimed at him. Bob Enyart said he that uh, in debates, he likes to start with Romans 9, which is a decent debate strategy, trying to uh, destroy their base before they even get a chance to talk about it. So that way, once if you if you go first and have that opening uh, salvo, and they go second, and then they talk about the same passage that you already talked about. Then in the back and forth questions, you've already answered a bunch of their questions, and they're going to have to, what are they going to do? They're, they're going to say, well, how do you respond to this? You said, well, didn't you just listen to my opening? What's your response to my arguments against your very own proof text, how your proof text shows that your views are not accurate and so it, it does it does take away their footing i don't know if it's the best debate strategy but it does seem to work it's really an exciting chapter 
And when I've been able to debate Calvinists, I, if it's an organized planned debate, I always hope I can go first and I start in Romans chapter 9. We're going to go through the middle part of this chapter and it's pretty exciting. We might as well jump right in. Uh, Romans chapter 9 verse 13 quotes Malachi 1 verses 1 and 2. We read, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we find out that that's when they're in the womb, before they're even born. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. So what does that mean? Does it mean that here's this little baby, and we have a 15-month-old baby, Zachary, and we love him to no end? In fact, no matter where we go, people love this cute little baby, so precious. And so imagine, God is saying he hates this little baby who hasn't even done anything good or evil yet, we'll see the text says. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. His parents have done plenty of things wrong. But he hasn't done anything wrong. And God says, I hate that baby. Even in the womb, I hate him. Is that what God says? Would that be just of God? Now we say, oh, we can't go there because who are we to say what's just or what's right or wrong? We can't say. But you know, when God is interacting with people in the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Abimelech, whether it's somebody who believes God or somebody who doesn't believe in God. And so it's, it's really telling that Bob Enyart has interacted with uh, a lot of critics throughout the years because what he's doing right now is this dialogue between himself and an imaginary opponent. But when you actually when you actually do uh, interact with people like this and you say, well, is that just for for God to hate baby Esau? And they'll they'll respond in this exact way. So it's not like he's making up a straw man. This is their actual argument. And uh, he, he's just going out and addressing it straight away, pointing out to these passages in the Bible that are very antithetical to Calvinism. People, people talk to God throughout the Bible. People convince God to do things. People affect God. People uh, argue for stricter or more lenient standards of justice within God. And God treats people like they're rational and able to interact and able, able to give give thoughts into divine justice, the divine ways of ruling the world. People are not just minions. And Bob Inyart, we'll listen to him, he points this out. And they say to God, hey, that wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be fair. Does God say, you don't know what's right or fair. You have no idea what you're talking about. God never responds like that. In the text, he says, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. And you know why God interacts that way? because he created us and we have a conscience and the Bible says although they knew God they rejected him so obviously they knew God first and they must know the Bible talks about our conscience so one thing about Bob Enyart is uh, he's he's an intuitive so uh, he likes to you, you just heard him do it he says why did God make us like that and then he gave a reason so are you gonna find that why and then the reason within the bible you're not you're not really going to so that this his own extrapolations based on based on trends in the bible that he sees and he'll just state it like it, it's a fact rather than uh trying to interpret uh 
trying to piece together how why God would be motivated to do certain things. And that's what you're going to find a lot with Bob Enyart. Uh, a lot of times he uh, he he states things as fact, which are really more of it, what he thinks how God is operating rather than something with uh, set data behind it. But it makes sense. Why would God interact with us like this? Because he made us in his image. And, uh, you, you know, that's one possibility. Um, there, there might be other possibilities, too. But uh, I, that is one thing about Edgar. He does just throw these things out there. His explanation of the data, I, just positing it as fact. It, Yet the conscience is often seared. So God instilled in us a knowledge of him. And if you know him, you know right from... Another really good example of him just using this extrapolation is like uh, in, in the in the Garden of uh, Eden, or Garden of Eden, and uh, you have why why did God make this garden? Why did He do that? And uh, Bob Enyart will give this explanation that love is not love unless it's freely given, and uh, you can't wall people in. You have to give them a potential escape in order to get out. And he'll state this as if it's like biblical fact rather than a good explanation of the data, but there's other options. And, and so sometimes sometimes it's interesting listening to people who, you know, they, they really believe what they believe and they, they state it as such rather than being a little bit more, uh, less confident in, in the claims. Yes, that could be one of the, one, one reason explanatory a mindset that God was in for making the garden and putting us in there and giving us an out. But it's, it's not the only one. It's a good one, though. I'm wrong. So when Abraham says to God, hey, you wouldn't punish the righteous along with the wicked, would you? How could the judge of all the earth do that? That wouldn't be right. God's like, good point. What should we do? Well, that's Abraham. But Abimelech, he didn't know God. He didn't love God or submit or honor him. And God said to Abimelech, he said, hey, Abi, you're a dead man. Because, you know, they would take the patriarch's wives and think, hey, this is a good-looking woman. Let's, we'll consider, maybe we'll marry her or something. And God said, Abimelech, you're a dead man. And Abimelech said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was his sister. And he said to God, he said it was his sister, and I believed him. Can you hold me guilty for that? And God says, good point. All right, but don't blow it in the future. That's the way, if we go through the Bible and see the conversations that God has with men, do we see God implying that you guys don't have a clue, it's not worth talking with you? because you don't even know right from wrong. Now they're evil and they're wicked and they reject God, yet they have a conscience and they understand what's right or wrong. So uh, argument from silence is actually a pretty good argument when you have a book as big as, 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 as the Bible. <clears throat> you have no instances in which God's just being dismissive towards people and the people, how they describe and see morality, him just throwing them away and say, no, none of your opinions matter. But you have plenty of counterexamples. And uh, in, in spite of that, and so argument of silence is good. And then there's counterexamples of well, as well uh, of God taking people seriously, caring about what they value, considering how they think the world should be ran. It's that's actually pretty interesting in the Bible. God relational God. Do you, do you see that within uh, other religions where 
where the gods are taking input from outside them, themselves and and uh, considering what other people want and desire, and then sometimes adopting the ways that that they want to do things. You you really don't get the sense in even classical literature with Zeus that that type of thing happens because in those types of circumstances that it it's almost degrading in a power sense to the deities to be accepting the advice and uh, the the methods of doing things from lesser creatures. But the Bible's not concerned about that. The Bible is concerned about depicting God as relational and loving and interested in his creation and innovative. And uh, there, there's a real give and take relationship that's being described in the Bible. And the Bible is just, it's not like other theological texts. You know, there are some similarities, but the deities being described are completely different in character, temperament, personality. They do. And God interacts with them from that perspective. So when we present God and somebody says, uh, well, that's evil. We can't just dismiss it as irrelevant, suggesting that they don't know, they don't have a conscience, and they can't discern right from wrong. No, they might have a seared conscience, and they may be incorrect. But on the other hand, we have to consider, because when God is approached in the Bible, and men say, God, would you do this? It's not right. God just doesn't dismiss it. He considers it, and he evaluates it. And that's one of the ways he teaches us. And this is one of the lessons we should learn from that. So when we say God hates a baby, most people in the world would say, well, that's an unjust God. How could you hate a baby who hasn't done good or evil? So we could be egotistical and just dismiss it. So the, this whole side tangent, remember, he's still in Romans 9. Uh, he just side tangents, tangents to us to a uh, little monologue about justice. Now he's going to roll us back into Romans 9. And it, it's pretty seamless. Uh, it, probably people listening to this, they, they're following along with the different streams of thought, and they're going to be led right back into Romans 9. It's a pretty un uncanny ability, speaking ability, that Enyar had. And say, well, you're a fool. But if we're doing that, we're not behaving in a godly way. We're not following the example that God said in the Bible. Because that's not, when, when men talk about righteousness and relate it to God, God doesn't just dismiss it. He discusses it. He answers it. And pretty much most instances, he agrees with them. You're right. That is righteousness. That is truth. That is justice. So therefore, what will God do? And God does the right thing. So here we have a baby who before he's even born, God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So what does that mean? It's a figure of speech. It does not mean God hated the baby Esau. So that's, again, this, this is what Bobby Edgar does. That's a good explanation of the text, but could the text conceivably mean that God hates baby Esau? Yes. And so it, uh, it might not be good for a debate to concede that point. But yes, maybe the text, in fact, is stating that. But maybe there's a better option. And maybe that better option is that the speech is uh, idiomatic. It, it's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that it's not the hatreds that we think uh, when we think of someone hates someone else, that in that cultural context, it means something different. And he has actually pretty good evidence for this. 
But I, I do find it funny how he says, no, it's not this one. It's definitely this one. It does not mean that. It's a Hebrew idiom, an idiomatic expression. It's like saying that uh, so-and-so is a few fries short of a happy meal. That doesn't mean he's still hungry. Or saying he's not playing with a full deck, or he's firing unguided missiles, or the, his elevator doesn't go to the top floor. If we take any of those sayings and then translate them into Chinese, and they're reading them 40 years from now, they're going to wonder, what in the world are these people talking about? <laughs> they, will, they won't know, unless they know the figure of speech. And among the Jews, they had a figure of speech, like when Jesus said, if you love me, you have to hate your mother and father. Luke 14, 26. If anyone does not hate his father and mother and his children and his wife, then he cannot be my disciple. Wow. God commands us to love our children and to love our wife and to love our parents. So how could Jesus say, not once, a number of times, you got to hate them? It's a figure of speech. So I, I do like this about Bob Enyart is that he uses illustrating examples and he draws those illustrating examples from the Bible. He, he could have just he could have just used common examples like, uh, uh, oh, I, I hate that guy so much. And it's just a common uh, saying in, in the, within the United States or, oh, I hate that song. It's like you don't really hate that song. You just dislike that song or. Or maybe it's a joke. Maybe it's uh, some sort of. Uh, maybe you're just downright lying. You know, there's there's all sorts of possibilities for what that phrase would mean, and you could use common examples of that. But Bob Enyart, what he does is he flips to other parts of the Bible in which similar concepts are are said, and uh, he starts discussing what it would mean if we took it in the same way that. Calvinists, for example, would want to take this Romans 9 passage that Esau was actually really hated, although there's no evidence in Esau's life that he was hated. Uh, he, he prospered, he did pretty well, and uh, he had a lot of kids. So that's, that's typically not indicative of being hated by God. But uh, that, I think that's the main difference between proof text trumping and just drawing parallels. Parallels are good. Proof text trumping is bad. Proof text trumping is when uh, someone says, oh, I have this proof text that claims this one thing. And then you say, well, my proof text says the exact opposite. And so your proof text must be wrong or, or, or it can't, your proof text can't mean what you're reading there. Well, no, you're just using one proof text to try to trump another one. But when you're using this uh, allusions or illustrations, you're saying, look, the, here's a principle that I'm setting down. I'm laying out this language has has been used in the same way in other passages, ways that you can actually agree with. And so if you want to be consistent and hold consistent principles, you have to you have to uh, allow that for your passage as well. <laughs> uh, Brandon says, I truly hate the song Toxic by Britney Spears. That's uh, anyone under uh, 30 doesn't know what that song is. I don't know. <laughs> it means to love and to love more. That's what it means. That's what the figure of speech means. So Jacob I loved and Esau I hated means I loved Esau, but I love Jacob even more because I chose Jacob. I selected Jacob. It could mean that. It likely means that. 
Now, in Jacob's own life, remember, he ended up with Rachel and Leah, but he got Leah first. They didn't plan on it. And in Genesis 29.30, it says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So from that statement, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Would you think he loved Leah from that statement? I would think he did. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Rachel. He, his heart just started fluttering when he first saw Rachel. And he loved her to the end. But you know, Rachel, they were traveling when Rachel died, and they were near Bethlehem, and that's where he buried her, in, in a cave there. But then Leah, he buried in his family tomb in Hebron, where Abraham and Sarah were buried, and where Isaac and Rebekah were buried, and where Jacob and Leah were buried. Imagine that. And if you loved Rachel and hated Leah, you wouldn't bury the woman you hated in the family tomb with you. You'd bury the wife you loved. But he loved them both. You see, he just loved Rachel more than Leah, as the text says. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Yeah, it truly does seem to be idiomatic in that language in which uh, you say you hate something if, if if you're juxtaposing two things, one thing which you really love, and uh, you, you say the other thing is hated, and it's like a comparative hatred. So I don't think that Jesus was saying, hate your family. I don't think uh, the Bible's saying that God hated baby Esau, and I don't think Leah was hated, but because she was loved a whole lot less than Rachel, it uses that comparative hatred language. So Bob Enyart, I think he's really on to something, and I do like the fact that He's competent enough in knowing the story of the lives of Rachel and Leah that he's able to illustrate from their deaths and their burials that, you know, this this really is, it, it's, it's it, we're just not making it up. Uh, she was truly loved by him. And it's, it's hard for us to imagine uh, that uh, Leah would actually be hated, hated a wife of however many years. You know, was it wasn't like seven years between her and, and marrying Rachel that uh, he had to work to get Rachel. I don't know if any uh, sane individual would want to wait seven years for a lady or or like 14, double that. But uh, yeah, maybe, maybe Rachel's super special. I don't know. And just one verse later, it says, Now when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb and gave her children. And she bore Reuben. And then the third son was Levi, and Judah came along. Uh, so we see that figure of speech even in Jacob's life. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated means I loved Esau, but I love Jacob way more. I love Israel, my elect and chosen nation above all peoples of the earth. I love you, and I've chosen you for a task and I want you to obey me, and I want you to love me. But you don't love me. You reject me. And that's the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of the entire Word of God. So now in Romans 9, we read verse 13, but let's get the context. We'll go back starting in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, 
for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now it turns out that in her womb there were two nations. Two nations. There were the fathers of the two nations. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And Jacob is the father of Israel. What was Jacob's name changed to by God? Israel. Jacob had the 12 tribes. Israel, we'll go back and read Genesis 25, starting verse 21. But Jacob, his name is a synonym for Israel. God often calls them Israel. Sometimes he calls them Jacob. There were two nations in Rebekah's womb. Genesis 25, 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Welcome, Jeremy. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Are you a Bob Inyard fan? I am a Bob Inyard fan. Fantastic. Have you have you heard this uh, these presentations, this uh, predestined and free will? Have you ever heard listened through it all? I have not listened through it all yet. I have all the CDs though. I've been listening to his Romans for the last few months, so it covers a lot of the predestination free will stuff. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're just on the part in which uh, he, he talked about Jacob and Esau and being nations in the womb. Uh, have you heard any of his stories or did you watch his debate with, with uh, it was a Calvinist, there's, there's a Calvinistic debate on YouTube, a very angry looking guy, and it was filmed back in like the 90s, so it, it's pretty easy to spot if you're Googling Bob Enyart in debate. It's kind of like grainy 90s footage and there's an angry Calvinist and Bob Enyart, he's he's always happy-go-lucky in all his debates. And so it's it's a pretty stark contrast. I don't yeah. know if you, you noticed anything like that. But yeah. uh, but in that debate, I think this, this question was brought up. It's, are, are there two nations uh, in the womb? And uh, of course, the answer is yes, because that's what they're elected for. They're elected for a tasking, which is, often the case in the Bible, that's what election means. You're chosen to do something or for a purpose. If that makes sense? Yes. Sounds good. Any any uh, thoughts or do you want me to just hit play? No, go ahead and play. I, I because enjoy listening. Was, so. yeah. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. And when I've debated Calvinists, informally at least, uh, formal debates, this hasn't happened, but informally, they, they really despise this verse and through the Bible where it says this. And they, just this past week, one Calvinist said to me, must have been a pretty big womb. How could you have two nations in there? How big was this lady? And why would... Yeah, that's my experience too, that if you're interacting with Calvinists, they just don't want to answer simple questions. Uh, you're talking about the potter and the clay. Did God finish what he originally set out to do? They just, they just won't answer. Do you have a tendency to do that? 
Why would he have a tendency to, to despise or to mock what's clearly said? Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The reason Calvinists, people who believe in predestination, will want to resist this is because what the Bible teaches very clearly is that God chose one nation to fulfill a task, to take a role for his purpose. But all the individuals in that nation, they could either believe or reject. It was up to them, and almost all of them rejected. Almost all of them. That's why the elect nation, the chosen people, ended up going to hell, the vast majority. So when God chose... Yeah, in Romans 11, there's the, there's the verse that says uh, the elect are enemies of the gospel. And you point that out to Calvinists, and you try to get them to say, are the elect enemies of the gospel? They also won't answer. It's one of the... Uh, just, just knowing the Bible and being familiar with the Bible is the greatest asset in any interaction with these Calvinists because I think they've they've gotten an inflated sense of self because they interact with so many people who don't know the Bible as well as, as them. And so they could lead them through their talking points without any pushback. But as soon as you start giving just a little bit of pushback, uh, they shut down and they become defensive and become angry and start calling names. In my experience. Oh, did we lose the audio? Oh, I might have lost audio on that. I'm going to have to reshare that. We're at about the 13 minute mark, 13 or 14. So reshare that video file. Hey, chapter 65. It was up to them, and almost all of them rejected. Almost all of them. That's why the elect nation, the chosen people, ended up going to hell, the vast majority. So when God chose Jacob, it didn't mean that God determined that Jacob would go to heaven and Esau would go to hell. It didn't mean that. It meant that over every nation, God was going to bless Israel so he could work through them to teach the world what he had to teach, and especially so he could bring the Messiah who had to be born and suffer and die so we can have our sins forgiven. Now, why did God choose one nation? Why not just broadcast everything? Why go just to Abraham? Why do that? Why waste all that time? Because when God appears to people, What's the normal response in the Bible? Even if it's not God, if it's just an angel. People fall down. They're scared to death. You know, imagine God and all his greatness and power and majesty and righteousness, and here we are, sinful beings before him. People are scared to death of God. And God tried appearing to nations and appears as a, as a pillar of fire. And he opens the Red Sea and he does all these miracles, and the whole nation of Egypt rejected him, even though his hand was at work right in front of their face. They rejected him. That didn't work. Then he did all these miracles in front of the whole nation of Israel, and for 40 years, and they rejected him. So the direct approach doesn't work well. It doesn't work. What God realized is it's through relationships. 
I have a man here, Abraham, who's willing to listen to me. He wants to know me. I'm going to work with him. And Abraham, if you will obey me, and if you will love me, and if you teach your children to love me, then we could work together. So God chose Abraham, and then he chose Isaac and Jacob. And we see in each of their lives, they're not born believing in God, just primed to be a believer. They go through their own trials and their own rite of passage. And eventually, eventually Jacob gets to the point where he says, wow, God is in this place. There is a God. And that's why he's often called the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You know, we could have saved ink back then just by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But each one of them personally, individually, came to trust in the Lord. And it was not a guaranteed certain thing. So, yeah, he's, he's still on the same su subject there, going off on the little tangent. And so he, he has this speaking style in which uh, he gets this idea in his head. He's going through Romans, and this idea will lead to the second idea, which will lead to a third idea. And then he'll drag it all back. And uh, he does it in a wonderful way. Just his story crafting ability here where he's, he's illustrating how he sees God operating with, you know, uh, look at these babies. God doesn't hate this person. God tried to appear to these people and they rejected him. So he has to do this other thing, this uh, alternative plan. And so he weaves it all together in this very, um, it's enthralling story, maybe uh, one that we can identify with. It's, it's just some pretty natural speaking talent. It's uh, my, my takeaways. Jeremy, any thoughts on, uh, how, how Bob does his sermons and how he does his exegesis of the biblical text? Uh, no, he's, I, I think he's great with uh, his stories and how he just bringing Romans back to Malachi and then back to what it originally says in Genesis, talking about the two nations and everything, and then bringing in just the actual personality of the people and how Esau wasn't hated. You know, Esau gave up his birthright, and then all the symbolism behind that, and and um, it's, I like it all. So yeah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, when Jacob's going to go meet Esau, and the text is very explicit. I, it doesn't have to be, but it is. It's like, well, Jacob he took his family and he arranged them, and like he sent his servants first, and then he sent like his hired hands, and then his family, and then uh, like uh, Leah, and then Rachel last. So it's like the reverse order of his value. Like, like so that the, the people, if, if there was a conflict, those people would die first, and then everyone else has a chance to run away. And yeah. the story didn't need to be written like that, but it is just illustrating this funny concept, like I'm going to arrange people by value in case we're killed or something like that. But uh, something not pe many people know is that uh, despite Bob having notes, he goes off. He frequently goes off script on these tangents of sorts. I, I, th I think everyone, <laughs> everyone knows that. Maybe uh, if they don't, it should be fairly obvious just by his speaking style that it, it's it's a fluid thought. I th I would I would compare it to the way uh, Trump speaks. So if. Uh, Donald Trump, if you hear him speak, it's it's this stream of consciousness where 
one idea leads into the other, which suddenly shifts midstream and then leads back uh, to his original point. Sometimes it goes off uh, on the tangents and ends on those tangents. It's a stream of consciousness and it's very charismatic individuals have this ability. Uh, maybe not me, I'm not a stream of consciousness type of guy, but Bob Enyard did have that knack. So God chose the nation of Israel, not any particular individual. And as we go on, we'll see when he did choose individuals, most of them blew it. So many of the ones he chose rejected him and turned against him. And he eventually destroyed them. It's a different story than we normally, than, than is normally related to them. Now, if this prophecy about the older shall serve the younger, if that was about the little baby Jacob, and this little baby Esau would serve Jacob, if that was what it was about, and if everything was about those two individuals, well then it sure didn't work out because Esau was powerful and mighty. And Jacob comes in Genesis 32 and he was afraid of Esau, his brother. And he sent messengers and said, my Lord, I bow down to you. Here are all my gifts, my sheep and my whatever you want, please. I humble myself before you. So Esau wasn't serving Jacob. It was the other way around. Jacob served Esau. So why does the prophecy say that the older shall serve the younger? Because it had virtually nothing to do with those two individuals. God was planning to build a nation and a kingdom through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the rest of the world would one day, in a kingdom, serve that nation. And ultimately and forever, that nation would be those who believe. Because those in that nation who did not believe would eventually be sent to hell. And that nation would be exalted. That was God's plan. It was God's prerogative to select a people for himself to do his work. Jacob could have gone to hell and Esau could have gone to heaven. Instead, Jacob mustered some faith. Esau went on to marry Hittite women and became the father of the Edomites. And he married into uh, Ish the Ishmaelites, one of Ishmael's daughters. But Jacob could himself have gone to hell just as the vast majority of the chosen people went to hell. Now let's continue in Romans 9. Yeah, so that is actually one thing that uh, needs to be considered is that the elect can go to hell. Chosen people can go to hell. You you see uh, King Saul is probably the most prominent case in which God re uh, regrets his election of Saul for kingship. It's not like once you're chosen or elected, now things are set and in stone. And uh, if you're dealing with Calvinists, you, you should not concede that point. You should press back and make them they need to prove their assertions, what they're trying to smuggle into the conversation, their their philosophy, rather than it just being assumed. Uh, for example, like, uh, I don't know who I was dealing with, but about the Peter incident where before uh, before the rooster crows three times, um, uh, Peter's gonna, the, the, the whole denial scene, and uh, they're, they're treating it as if now that's faded, that must happen without considering maybe 
Peter could repent. Maybe that's a good thing. And maybe things didn't have to turn out this way. The story would be written differently. That we, we do have to consider counterfactuals, we'll call them. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now, why is he asking that? Because he just said, God chose Jacob rather than Esau. Well, God can choose whom he wants to work through. God can choose that. Paul's argument in the book of Romans, and this is so critical to understand this. Paul's argument, see, the Jews were saying, we are God's chosen people. And for this notion that God has gone to the Gentiles, forget it. That's absurd. God can't do that because he chose us. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He can do it. So that's actually really critical. So this is this is the main thrust of the book of Romans, uh, that Paul is writing to a hostile audience, a Jewish audience who doesn't, they don't want to accept Gentiles as equal participants in the body. There were God-fearers, yes, and these are proselytes from the Gentiles who don't want to go all the way, don't want to circumcise and then fully join the cult practice of uh, Israel. And so they're God-fearers, but they were not considered fully equal unless they adopted all the ritualistic laws. And Paul comes in and he starts saying, these people are equal. They don't have to circumcise. They're one of you and they should be treated as equal. And his audience hated this. They were Jews. They were the elect. They were the chosen. And this is this is why Romans 9 is written in this way. It's like, what, what claim do you have to uh, uh, on God's choices? You can't tell God who to choose. If God wants to graft in the Gentiles, that's his prerogative. The entire book of Romans is about this Jewish-Gentile issue, which has been captured by modern Christianity, wanting to make it into a personal election salvation issue without any cultural context of who it's written to and the purpose and the, the cultural concepts at that time. And so I think Bob Enyart was one of my first exposures to this concept that this is about people. The, the, these are nations. This The entire passage, it talks about Israel and talks about Gentiles. Just list out within Romans 9, 10, 11, every time it says Gentiles, every time it says Jews, every time it says Israel, it's all about nation and people groups. That's what, that's what the passage is about. Paul is saying, right, he can do it. And just as he was righteous in choosing you, he's now righteous in choosing the Gentiles. And who are you to criticize? Who are you to say he's wrong? Who are you to resist because you can't resist? Because if God rejects Israel and turns to the Gentiles, that is his prerogative. That's what the story is all about, the chapter. And we'll see that the reason that God turned away from Israel was not because it was his plan. He did everything he could to get Israel to have faith. And he says that. And he expected that they would have faith. And he says that. He says, but you didn't have faith. So what am I going to do? I can't bless you if you hate me. That'll only reinforce your sin. So what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God because he chose one to work through over the other? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. 
So I think there's there's two main talking points that throughout my life I've I've picked up from this. There's a lot more, but two that come to mind right now is him pointing out number one that's God's prerogative uh, to do the choosing. Using the word prerogative um, is a very that the word has a lot of forcefulness. It it, it it means something very specific, and so incorporating that word prerogative, you have. You have the ability and the right to make decisions. Incorporating that into your vocabulary is a good thing. And then the second thing he's going to do right now, I think he's going to do it right now, but pointing out that God's not choosing arbitrarily or capriciously. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God will have compassion on whomever he will have compassion. Is it up to us to determine whom God will show mercy to or whom God will save? It's not up to us to tell God. It's up to God. So Israel can't say to God, you're going to accept us because that decision is up to us. No, it's up to God. God has compassion on whomever he wills to have compassion. Now, on whom does he will to have compassion? Whoever humbles themselves, whoever repents, whoever turns to the Lord, whoever obeys, that's to whom he wills to have compassion. And Israel was rejecting God. They say, we reject God, but we demand that he have mercy on us. And we demand that he blesses us. And we demand that he keeps his program, his prophecies, his promises to us. We demand he keeps those, even though we reject him. Paul says, you can't do that. God has compassion on whom he wills to have compassion. It's not up to you. But Paul's not saying God is completely arbitrary in whom he has compassion on. And God just, uh, in a divine way, rolls the dice and has nothing to do with you. God has compassion arbitrarily. But Paul doesn't say God has compassion arbitrarily. He says he has compassion on whom he wills. The Calvinist assumes that mean that that means that his will is arbitrary. His will does not take into account the human beings that he's dealing with. That's what they think that means. But it doesn't mean that. And how do they get to that point? Well, later we'll talk about Aristotle and Plato and how they taught Calvinism 2000 years before Calvin was born. And how Calvinism, how that concept Aristotle so yeah, that's, that's it's a really good point that he makes that uh, yes, God, it's God's prerogative to make decisions. That doesn't mean he acts capriciously or randomly or just makes uh, choices based on nothing. We we learn throughout Romans. He he tells us. He says uh, if you keep misbehaving, Gentiles, you know, just as easily as you're grafted in, you could be grafted right back out. You could be chopped off. If the natural branches, if the natural branches don't survive, do you think you're going to survive? And so Paul's not saying that God's making arbitrary choices. And that's what the Calvinists actually believe, if you could get them to admit it, that God picks people for the sole purpose of maximizing his greatest glory. They say, oh, there's nothing within myself that made God pick me. And because all, all Calvinists, they, they tend to think that they're, they're the elect. So it's like, oh, God chose me, but nothing about myself. No, he just chose me. Uh, what, there's that Tyler Vela video that's floating around where, where it's put to the tune of me, 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 like, uh, uh, what is it, the Muffet Show? 
it was done by Pine Creek atheist because Tyler Vela is a Calvinist, and uh, this is this is the standard Calvinist message. Oh, he chose me. Oh, me. There's nothing that I did. Me, me, me. And they they talk about themselves a lot. They're pretty pretty man focused. But uh, yeah, God doesn't pick arbitrarily or capriciously. God picks for reason, reasons because he's a reasonable individual. Aristotelian philosophy permeated the early church, permeated. Our greatest, oldest theologians said that you can only study the Bible through the teachings of Aristotle. That's how we know God. That's what they did. So that is my pet peeve, though, is uh, everyone talking about Aristotle. Aristotle is kind of like a piker compared to Plato. And so if you just search through the church fathers for the term Plato and then against uh, Aristotle, Plato's a lot more prominent. A lot more of Pla Platonic theology is adopted. Uh, he had Paramendes, which talked about the one. Uh, he was an inspiration for those like Plotinus, uh, who, who was a direct influence of uh, Augustine. Augustine said that he needed to read the Bible in light of Platonism or else it was absurd. Th these are these, This is what's happening. So Plato was was the real source. Aristotle's kind of a piker. He, he gains more prominence around the time of Aquinas, but the church fathers loved Platonism. They love Plato. Uh, Augustine in his Christian doctrine says, a Platonism is the closest thing to Christianity that there is out there. Th this, is, this is the admiration they had. Uh, Ambrose. Ambrose is a well-known uh, Platonic adherent, a Platonic Christian who incorporated a lot of Platonism into his messages. And who and he was, of course, the teacher of Augustine. And we'll see as we go on that that's where these ideas came from. Aristotle was a very good Calvinist, although he was a pagan Greek philosopher who knew nothing of the Word of God. I'd say right, Plato. So, <laughs> it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You can't will by the force of your will to get God to save you. You can't do that. So it's like the lesbian who called into my show a while back and said, Bob, I've been watching your show. I, I've been a lesbian for years now, and I believe that uh, I, I think I should become a Christian, and I want to know, would you, do you think I should become a Christian, and would you pray with me to do that? And I said, no. She said, huh? I said, no, you're asking me if I think you should become a Christian? No, you should not. She was shocked. And uh, she said, I can't believe that. I've been watching you for so long. You want everybody to become a Christian? Now I want. And I said, no, I don't think you should become a Christian. And I was so glad she didn't hang up right away because we got to talk for another 15. So I, I do think that I, in my own life, I've adopted this strategy more often than not because Bob Enyard pioneered the way. He's a true pioneer in, in dealing with individuals. He's able to see through this, this woman's intentions. And he's not interacting like when you're young, you think everyone's has is full of integrity and honesty. And so when you're talking to them about ideas, you're actually talking to them about ideas. But you know, uh, pretty soon you learn in the real world that people just lie, lie through their teeth to you uh, constantly and consistently. And so don't treat them as if they're honest individuals. And, you know, like the Calvinist um, who I deal with, uh, and they say, oh, if this was true, then this terrible thing would be true. I say, well, you don't have to be a Christian. There's other options out there. There's Platonism, which cuts through the thick of their moralizing, their, their whiny, 
oh, your your theology is so bad. It it it, it actually it makes them confront the fact that it doesn't matter their feelings. They could cry all they want. The Bible is is what 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 matters is our data set. If they don't like it, they could go somewhere else. So great tactic, great strategy. He was very good at reading people. And uh, I, I, if his uh, Las Vegas debates is a good video to watch of him interacting with random people uh, on the spur of the moment in a moderated debate, we'll say, in which uh, random people, it, it was a change my mind before Steven Crowder I did his whole Change My Mind series. But Bob Inner had that live, live from Las Vegas, I think it's called, one of the DVDs. But it, it, it's good. Uh-oh, I think we lost the audio again. Minutes. Oh, there we and go. If she would have hung up right away, so many Christians would have said, that Enyar is a jerk. <laughs> but I thank God for discernment and wisdom, and I sensed that she wanted to mock God and she wanted to use me and my show to mock God. So I didn't know what her, what her deal was. At that moment, I couldn't figure out where she was going, what her specific tactic was. But I knew her strategy was somehow to mock God through my show. But what was the tactic? Well, as we talked, it became obvious. And then she couldn't, she couldn't continue role-playing, and it, it leaked out. And her goal was to say, I want to be a lesbian Christian. I'll be a Christian, I'll pray, I'll believe in Jesus, but I'm going to be a lesbian Christian. And then I'll bring my lesbian girlfriend to the Lord. We live together, and we'll go to your church as two lesbians. See, she wanted to mock God. And I, I'm thrilled that we didn't enable her to do that. But she cannot will for God to have mercy on her. It's not of her. She can't say, God will accept me. It's up to me to decide who's God is going to have mercy on. And I despise him and I despise his commands, but I determine that he will love me. You can't do that. So, yeah, the, uh, Bob Enyar, according to this comment, the new openness uh, attributes hermeneutic, the Noah. It, Bob Enyar pioneered a way of reading the Bible which prioritized God's love. Uh, God is living, personal, relational, good, and loving. Uh, the actual five biblical attributes of God and reading the Bible in that light. And there was uh, on the Open Theism Wikipedia page for maybe like a month or two after he came up with the hermeneutic that was featured on the Wikipedia page until editors like pulled it down and they're like, well, this is not like Open Theism. This is just like one guy. And they, they pull it down. Editors like to do that. Uh, pull down. Uh, Wikipedia turns into like a debate page where where the, the advocates and, and the critics are all conflicting and, and pulling stuff down. For, so for a while on the Wikipedia page, they were like downright Calvinist writing counterpoint uh, theses on, on the actual open theistic page. It's like, what are you doing? You're trying to define open theism and you're just writing a thesis against it from a Calvinistic perspective. But anyways, um, so that is actually pretty interesting. The openness uh, attributes hermeneutic maybe comparable to Greg Boyd's Christocentric uh, hermeneutic, his Christ-centered view. But uh, I do think uh, Bob Enyar was a little bit more faithful to the original source text in his, in his application of his hermeneutic. I, I don't know how useful 
it is as in a practical sense but it is it is a good talking point it is a very good to contrast the dead static idol god who's stone and immutable of calvinists with the actual biblical attributes of living personal good loving relational God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And that is not based on any irrational or irrelevant selection of human beings or arbitrary. It's based on those who humble themselves before God. We're going to be talking about Pharaoh here and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Verse 17, for the, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So Bobby Nair is not shying away from the strong, the strong Calvinistic proof text. The, the Calvinists will turn to this and say, see, this is an example of, of God forcing someone's heart to be a certain way. And people like Leighton Flowers will say, well, uh, doesn't that sound like that's not the normal case? Why, if God's controlling everything, would he have to harden someone's heart? Wouldn't it already be hardened? Wouldn't, would they already pre be predestined from eternity? Th this type of hardening action only works with an open future, only works in which there's someone pressing against what God wants. God has to take act active positive actions to force something into uh, God's goals. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Whom he wills. All right. Hardened hearts. Technically, how did Pharaoh's heart get hardened? How was it hardened? The Bible says three things about his hardness. So I think this is another takeaway in my life. Um, just his uh, talking about what's the mechanism by which God does things. And then you could take that concept and apply it anywhere in, in the Bible. God says he does this, or God says he, he, he thinks this, or God, it, something describes God. And then you ask, what is the mechanism? It, God has knowledge. What's the mechanism? How did he get that knowledge? God hardens someone's heart. What's the mechanism in what way did he harden their heart? God knows the thoughts of someone's heart. Well, what, what's the mechanism? Is it like instant, ungenerated access to some sort of formula that's uh, abstractly in someone's mind? Or is it God tests their heart to know their heart? Maybe, maybe that's the mechanism. Maybe, perhaps the Bible might describe that as being the mechanism God uses to know the, the thoughts of the heart. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says God hardened his heart, and it just says his heart was hardened. And if you look, it says each of those a number of times. This is Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, and his heart was hardened. How did it get hardened? What was the mechanism that hardened his heart? Was it a hardening agent? I have a friend who owns a caulking company, Sashko. They make Big Stretch and Lexel and these great caulks sold all over the country. And I worked there for a while doing their publicity, PR, advertising, and they have hardening agents they put in a caulk. And so it's soft in the tube, and then you apply it, and then it's a chemical reaction, then it firms up. But it stays nice and soft, so it seals well. A little commercial for Sashko. Um, but it's a hardening agent. So did God put a hardening agent 
in Pharaoh's heart. I don't mean chemically. I don't mean he injected a chemical in his physical heart and gave him hardening of the arteries. I mean spiritually. Did God use some type of spiritual hardening agent that sort of spiritually, chemically, hardened his heart? Or was it another mechanism altogether? It was a different mechanism. The text tells us repeatedly in Exodus what God did to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's always the exact same thing. Miracles. God did a miracle, it hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did a miracle, it hardened Pharaoh's heart. It turns out that the normal response to miracles is a hardness of hearts. Jesus, the more miracles he did, how did the people respond? They hated him. They rejected him. The more miracles he did, in fact, the three cities where he did most of his miracles, those three cities utterly rejected him. And Jesus pronounced an eternal curse on the three cities where he did more miracles than anywhere else. And for 40 years in the wilderness, and the miracles for the whole nation of Egypt, they never repented. In the manuscript, the plot, we go through every miracle listed in the Bible. We have a chart of every miracle, what, where the verse is, and what was the response of those who saw the miracle, and even those who received the miracle. And it's almost always negative. Miracles foster unbelief. Miracles normally, now there's rare, rare exceptions. Sometimes, like when Jesus raised... So this is another astute observation by Bob Enyart that miracles often have this negative effect. I think he takes the conclusion to the extreme, though, and he uses that as an explanation of why God doesn't do things elsewhere in the Bible. He says, oh, because of this reason, which, again, it's it's speculative. Bob Enyart is that intuitive type who, who likes to state very speculative things very concretely, which, you know, it's a personality type. It's Lazarus, people believed. You know, Lazarus had been ministering to people, Mary and Martha, and they had a thing going there. Jesus liked to go there. They had been working on the people around there. Jesus raised Lazarus, and people believed. That's neat, but that's very rare. Sometimes Jesus did a miracle that people believed, and then a day later they turned on him. So we don't know exactly to what extent they believed or if it was an enduring faith or not. But overwhelmingly, when God did miracles, people rejected him as a result of it. It's like when somebody disagrees with you and then you prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, it's, it's so lovely when that happens. Uh, my, the name of the channel is Reality is Not Optional. Reality has this tendency to... Uh, make sure that people can't believe falsities for such a long time. And uh, it's great when that karmatically comes back around and, and hits someone. And then they realize everything that they believed up to that point is wrong. And uh, they hate you for it. They hate you for it. Ah, I'm not going to tell any personal examples because uh, that would be that would be telling. But uh, I, it is funny when that happens in life. Oh, is it not working? Are you going to play for me? There we go. Full, you prove them wrong. <laughs> Normally, they get angry. They get real bad. And they especially get angry. if you prove them wrong in public. <laughs> so here's Pharaoh. <laughs> He's resisting Israel. He's resisting the God of Israel because he has his own gods. And God shoves it in his face and says, I'm stronger than your gods. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened.
That's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, I think the very last time we read about Pharaoh's heart growing hard is when the Lord made it look like the Israelites were stuck. They were up against the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. And Pharaoh said, look, they have no escape. They don't know the land. They're stuck at the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he went to destroy them. And then God just sucked them in and, and fixed their wagons or when the wheels came off the chariots. And then the water came in and destroyed the Egyptian army. Yeah, so uh, this this episode is, is almost at its conclusion, this part two. And I, I think the whole CD, if you ever buy it, there's there's 11 equally sized parts. And so it's a it's a pretty, pretty long series. And it's, it's worth a listen to, maybe a couple listens to. But uh, we're almost done here. So I did post the link. If anyone wants to chat or is tell, say any uh, stories, fond memories of Enyart, um, you're welcome to do that. I'll post the link in the chat. Um, but otherwise, once the stream ends, maybe some concluding thoughts and we will we'll close down. But if you want to stay online, if there's people who want to join in and talk about it, Bob Enyart, that is also welcome. So that's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did miracles. And he gave him an opportunity. Look, Pharaoh, it looks like they're trapped. And God is willing to use the wicked to teach as many as will listen that he has power and might and that he's righteous and that he will judge the wicked. So you better repent because I will use the wicked. I will raise up a man to be mighty and powerful to teach the world that I am more mighty and more powerful, and I will judge, no matter how strong you are, from the greatest to the lowest, I will judge. God is willing to raise up a man to do that. 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 I think that now we got on loop or something like that, because probably because it's uh, actually ending in the file, and StreamYard doesn't know how to deal with that. But yeah, that's Bob Enyart. Um, I think he's an excellent teacher. He exposed me to a lot of ideas, which I might not have come to naturally because, of course, we grow up in this Hellenistic world in which uh, people read the Bible through certain goggles. And so you have to break the mindset. And Bob Inyer is really good at reading, interpret interpreting, and then popularizing. Popularizing is actually a a really good skill to have taking dense complicated material and then making it digestible for common individuals like if there's a scholar talking about something that's it's not very many people are going to be able to listen to that and get on board but if there's a popularizer who both can speak to the layman and understand the complicated material he could translate he could interpret he could simplify he could use illustrations and stories to to uh solidify these concepts in the listener's mind. And that was a skill Bob Inyer had. Again, he's a, a people person, a very charismatic individual who understand, who understood the nature and character of, of how people act and interact and how they process thoughts and beliefs. And so that is one of the reasons that uh, Bob Enyart did so well in his interactions, his discussions, his debates. The Gene Cook debate on open theism, fantastic. Um, the Bob Inyart one, or not the Bob Inyart and James White one was uh, so-so, but uh, other discussions with that Calvinist, 
uh, very good, very very good interactions and a lot of good takeaways, a lot of good debate strategies. Again, I'm going to have to cut out all of my favorite debate clips from all the debates, even the Will Duffy debates and other open theistic debates. Um, a lot of good stuff going on there. But Bob Enyart, he will be sorely missed. He did a lot of good for open theism. And as we saw before, someone was posting his achievements on social liberty. And so he was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was able to do a lot of amazing things in his life. Again, my, one of my fond memories was in South Dakota watching the, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And here's this guy, Bob Enyart, destroying O.J. Simpson's memorabilia. And so I, I was actually, when I was in Greece with Bob Enyart, he's telling me the story of that. And uh, he's like, well, you know, we wanted to do this. Uh, we bought up all the memorabilia. Uh, we, it, it went to auction, auction because remember, uh, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of the criminal case in murder, but he was found guilty in the civil case. So they had to take his assets and sell his assets. So they went to auction. Bob Enyart went there, bid on them, and uh, he was able to get all, all that um, uh, memorabilia of O.J. Simpson's. And then he wanted to publicly destroy it at the courthouse steps. And so normally... I, they did it in like California. Normally they don't issue uh, passes or they don't issue the permits to do public burning in uh, in California. So he, he he got a hold of, I think it was like the fire chief and the fire chief's like, no, we don't, we don't give out permits. We don't allow anything like that. And he said, oh, we're going to destroy OJ Simpson's memorabilia. And then the guy's like, where do I sign? <laughs> and so uh, they, they signed that off. Uh, he, he, he actually, and, it increased his notoriety. It gave him a lot of national prominence. And I think I think even financially, that was a good decision for him because he was able to make more money in donations when people saw the good that he was doing than he spent actually auctioning auctioning for those that that memorabilia. And so it was it was a good marketing strategy, a good good PR and for a good cause and uh, making OJ Simpson very mad that he'll never again see it was like a trophy or something. And a, I don't know anything about football. It was like a Heisman trophy or something and like a jersey. But OJ Simpson had his stuff destroyed. And then later when OJ Simpson got arrested, um, there was a news story that came out saying, oh, all his all his memorabilia was taken by the police and I was listing these things. And so Bob Enyart, I think it was Bob Enyart, uh, had individuals call up and say, no, we actually destroyed this stuff, remember? And so it's it's the the report, the news report is incorrect. We have already destroyed that. Those, that stuff no longer exists. Oh, poor O.J. Simpson. But uh, the, one of the worst things, I was in a pre-law class in college, and I'm, I'm talking to the, these professors, the, these lawyers, they're 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 insane in, in their minds they this guy thought that if someone's found not guilty in a court of law then that person actually is not guilty that's how this mindset works and so i brought up oj simpson it's like yeah the, the, uh, these people are guilty even though they're found innocent they're definitely guilty and the professor's like oh no uh no he wasn't guilty but guess what he wrote a book about it he wrote a book about uh killing killing his wife and uh, waiter his wife and waiter. In 1990, Enyart bought 16K worth of O.J. Simpson memorabilia, which he burned on the steps of the Los Angeles courthouse. Yeah, that is the story. So <laughs> I bet he and Miller are looking it up right now. But uh, it was fantastic. 
And so he's pretty proud of that moment. I, I thought it was a hilarious story, the instant reversal in the fire chief once he found out what it's about and uh, the the oncoming notoriety for doing those types of things. So uh, other things he did was uh, protested Clinton. I think he went to Australia with the Clinton, Clinton is a rapist banners because Clinton raped Juanita Broadwick. And, you know, Clinton can't practice law in Arkansas because, because he's a rapist. And so uh, he brought those banners to Australia and was like kicked out of Australia and things like that. A lot of, oh, the other one is Matthew Shepard. Matthew Shepard was this homosexual individual and uh, he was murdered. And in, in reality, it was a drug deal gone bad. He was like a drug user and he was killed by his like drug distributors. But the whole media lied to everyone. They said it was like an anti-homosexual hate crime. Oh, he was murdered for being gay. Oh, he was just a gay guy walking around. And then some hicks drove up to him with with like a pickup truck. And they, they're like, get in the pickup truck. And then they go they kill him because he's gay. That That's how the media tried to play it out. It wasn't that story at all. But he protested the funeral. And uh, he protested the funeral in a very interesting way. He, he took out banners. And the banners weren't about homosexuality at all. They were anti-abortion pictures like know your pro-choice rights and like pictures of aborted babies and stuff like that so they went and they protested the funeral and uh showing these sides and it was like a, the memorial event and the people they, uh, bobby and in the back he says know your pro-choice rights and they all turn around and they all see uh, pictures of abortion and so then they get arrested and they're getting arrested by and this judge is, is accusing them of hate crimes. It's like, what did we say against homosexual against homosexuals? What are we saying against that? We, we're, we're protesting abortion over here. Didn't you see the signs? And uh, Bobby Inert was telling me the story. He's like, you know, it, it would have been just perfect if it was like in the Bible. There's a judge in the Bible who lifted out there out his hand uh, to make a, pro, a proclamation and then his hand withers up. It's one of the times that God mocks wicked people in the Bible. He said, hey, that would have been just perfect for that incident if it did happen. But that judge insisted she truly knew the motives of our hearts, even though there's nothing explicit, nothing in evidence about them uh, protesting homosexuality. Oh, it's so fantastic. So Bob Anyert would do things like that. And uh, I think I incorporated one of his protest methods in college because what he would do is, he was telling me, he's like, we'd go to these protests, these animal rights protests, and these animal rights people were write like, like huge treatises, like, like paragraphs and paragraphs of tech. No one could read those things. And so if you go there with an abortion sign that's like big and graphic or something, um, then people driving by, they'll only see our signs. They'll think the whole protest is an anti-abortion protest because no one could read this little tiny text. And so I, I did I did do that once in, in college when I got a phone call because I was running the pro-life group. And uh, I heard that they're uh, on uh, right next to the drive uh, across campus. There was, there's kind of like a street that went through the middle of campus. That was a pretty popular road. There are all these people with pro-abortion signs out there in this huge line, like 20 of them. And so I got this phone call that that was happening. So I went and I grabbed my abortion signs big big graphic sides and i ran out there and i just stood right in the middle of all these people and so the people driving through this 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 sea of signs will will see the, uh, 
some some sort of pro-abortion message, one word at a time. And then they'll see my picture, and uh, that as one of the one of the final pictures in, in the sequence. And so I get out there. I, I'm standing there with my sign, and uh, the girl next to me, uh, she 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 looks at me. She looks at my sign, and she starts freaking out. She didn't know what to do. She 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 had no idea. And so um, the the organizer of this. Uh, pro-abortion event comes over to her. She's like, I, I don't know what to do. What do I do? Do I do something? And, and th that person's like, oh, there's nothing we can do. They're struck dumb. Uh, they, they don't know how, how to handle situations that they they can't anticipate, that they, they haven't pre-formulated responses to. They can't deal with a dynamic, a, a dynamic situation. And so um, Bob Enyart was, was pretty good at pioneering situations like that and i think that probably was my inspiration for that day but a uh, fantastic time uh, very good at protesting and using innovative protest means and methods so bob Innert was a good guy i liked him very much he was a friend of mine and uh we'll probably wrap this up here pretty pretty quickly and i will miss him pretty sorely so uh, funeral happening or memorial happening, what, um, the 2nd of October? So find details about that. All right, we're going to close up. Anyone else have any comments or, or questions or concerns or quick stories? We used to have an atheist protest us. This is Emperor Light. While we, while we protested, funny thing is that people would always assume the atheist was with us, so he'd get stuff thrown at him like hangers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So one one of the other things I did was um, uh, Center for Bioethical Reform. They they had this a big abortion truck that had abortion pictures on the side, and uh, the the pro aborts they're they're dangerous and evil people, and so they would like take shots and stuff at it. So they they needed just someone to drive a security car, and so that was me. And I had the a, a steel bulletproof vest that I would uh, I, I put on or whatever, and I'd drive around in this security car, and I'd look like a cop. The cops pulled me over like so many times uh, because I think the pro boards were really mad at me, and so they were calling the cops, claiming that I was doing bad things as a cop. And so I got pulled over like three times in one day by these cops harassing me. And the funny thing is, the whole event was ran by this super Catholic lady, like very Catholic, and so. Uh, she likes doing the like the blessing stuffs and the first time I'm pulled over I'm in this cop car. It's a, a security car I'm, I'm pulled over and the cop walks up to me. And he's like license and registration And so I reach for the glove compartment I open it up and what's in there, but like a baggie of white substance. I'm like, what is this? Am I am I drug running? What? What, what's happening here? So I shove that bag of white substance. I shove it in the back of the glove compartment. I grab out all the registration stuff and hand it to the cops. And uh, then he didn't see it or anything. So that was good. I go back to this Catholic lady. I'm like, why do we have a bag of white substance in this glove compartment here? And she's like, oh, holy salt. Holy salt? Who's ever heard of holy salt? I don't know what holy salt is. So... <laughs> I think my dad's joining up here. Uh, Craig, can you hear us? Yes, I can. All right. I'd like to add something about Bob. Okay. When we were first going to school together, it must have been 40 years ago at with Bob Hill. Um, <clears throat> Bob, you know, he had a family then, <clears throat> and he was coming. I think he was originally trained to be a programmer. 
uh, and what and his claim to fame was that uh, there was a, a instructive uh, flight simulator that they originally Black Hawk, right? what Blackhawk he, he he did the Blackhawk hel helicopter simulators well, could have been that I, I don't know which one exactly but they were not making the deadlines and they were going broke and then they would have been charged a penalty and kicked off the project but he took that assembler language program and he changed it to Fortran or COBOL. You know, I'm dating myself. What are those ancient languages? And actually saved the company and uh, and completed the flights, flight simulation. So he, he was very talented uh, in what he did. And he could have had a very successful and rich life as a, as a computer programmer. In those days, there wasn't as many as there are now. But instead of that, he goes to Colorado and he takes classes from Bob Hill in this school that's not school derby theology that's not even fully accredited. Uh, and and uh, what's the uh, so if you want to be a pastor and you're going to Derby School of Theology and then you graduate, what do you want to do? You want to uh, find a church that'll take you that you you know is already established that can give you a salary or something. But what does Bob do? <laughs> he goes out there and and puts in these podcasts and he starts writing books and he he virtually I think he created his own church. I'm not too sure about the history of, of Denver Bible Church, but Bob was just an innovator who went hundred percent in everything that he did and he and he he uh he really turned his life, you know, if you hate your your family, your mother and father and whatever. And, and Bob showed his love toward God and that he went full off for them. He didn't ignore his family or anything, but he he showed where his first priorities were. And they were they were with getting the message out and getting the truth out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he worked for him. He worked for less. Uh, you know, he, he did all kinds of things. And he was talented. I mean, how do you, how do you go from programmer to uh, media broadcast person? person for a, a company to to journalist and he was multi-talented a very very brilliant guy uh really glad to say that i that i knew him and and um we're all walking in his shadows i think his best book you like that one but his best one the, the plot and it's about dispensationalism so if you ever want to uh to get a good book uh, that talks about church history and what's going on in the Bible. Uh, get the plot. It, it's, it's the best one. And so uh, uh, he actually told me one of his Microsoft stories. And so uh, here's a, co a comment from Scott. Bob worked as a journalist for PC Weekly. And Bob was telling me about this. He's like, how did I become a journalist for them? Well, I just started writing guest articles and sending it to them. And they start publishing them. And then it's like, oh, do you want to hire me? And then they hired him. So he kind of worked his way into PC Magazine as this, uh, as this uh, journalist. And then uh, Microsoft hires him because they want to shut him up or whatever. And he's telling me that uh, during during uh, during the hiring process, they have everyone sign like NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Like sign this, and you can never badmouth uh, Microsoft again. And he said, "No, I'm not going to sign it." <laughs> and so he never did. He, they they still hired him. He never signed that NDA. And then there was there was a Microsoft event. This was like in the early days of the internet. And so Microsoft had this whole 
computer lab set up to try to illustrate how computers could communicate to each other over the networks. And uh, that the problem was it was all fake. They, they, they just programmed the computers to do things on like a timed basis. The computers weren't actually connected to each other. And uh, Bob Enyart exposed them. He goes in there and he, they pull up all the carpets and none of the wires are connected to each other. The whole thing was a fraud. And so Microsoft got really mad at him and they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna sue you then because of your NDA. And they, he's like, I didn't sign one. And they looked through his files and they couldn't find the NDA. And so <laughs> he got away with not getting sued by Microsoft. And he, he could have been like a millionaire because uh, Microsoft paid employees and stocks. And so he could have had stocks and uh, been, I think he met Bill Gates. He went to Bill Gates's house at one time, something like that. But uh, he could have done all that, but he decided to give that all up to pursue the ministry. Yeah, he was an incredible person. He sacrificed a lot. He just... Uh... He's just a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful Christian, and uh, the way that he's been treated in the press is just shameful. But, but he's in, he's in heaven now. He's talking to Jesus Christ, and who cares what his reputation is like here on earth? Because Jesus is saying, "Well done, good and faithful servant," and he's, he's getting accolades now. Yeah. Yeah, they'll hate. They'll hate you. They hate us. They want us dead. And so, yeah, you you did see a lot of hate on uh, his his personal page before a lot of that stuff got cleaned up. People, they're just vicious. They're vicious. Why? Because he said mean things to people. Oh man, the tears <laughs> are flowing. Oh, he said to me, he hurts your feelings. Oh, he's such a terrible person. <laughs> He had Christmas dinner at Bill Gates' house in the early days of Microsoft. Yeah, I think he did tell me that story of meeting Bill Gates at his house. But that had two different trajectories in life, Bob Inyard and Bill Gates. But, but you know, the, the important things, Bob was always on it. The creation, uh, evolution debate, he was on top of that. He was on top of some political things too, but, but as far as... Um, dispensationalism and uh, inerrancy of the Bible and the uh, textual criticism and just just every issue. Bob was always on the right side and it usually went against uh, whatever was popular, whatever was popular in Christianity and whatever was popular in the world. But Bob, Bob stood up for the truth and he was just an incredible, wonderful person. Yeah, I was pretty surprised in his uh, Ken Ham, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy debate review, in which he he was he was, he was giving uh, Ken Ham a lot of accolades because Ken Ham spent his debate talking about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and Bob Enyart liked that strategy rather than debating the actual issues. I don't know if I listened to the debate. I was like, oh no, what's going on here? Well, Bob really loved it. He did a lot of good with his uh, real science radio. I don't know if you remember the whole controversy with Real Science Friday and how they published that as a parody and then they were sued by Science Friday or whatever evolutionist program there was to tr they're trying to get his get his uh, name taken down. Oh, oh, one of the great stories that he told me was how a Denver Bible Church got its name. Like if you're in, in Denver or whatever, you register your churches and you register the names. And so when they're coming up with the name, they wanted something that was 
that was very descriptive and very easy to remember. Oh, they're a Bible church and they're in Denver. So they'll be Denver Bible Church. And so they looked and the name wasn't taken. And so they're they're going to register, they, they register the name. And uh, there's this different Denver Bible Church who contacts them all angry. And I think they, uh, Bob Inner even gave them a chance and said, hey, this is not registered. Um, we're, we want to register as it. And uh, if you want it, you need to register first. And they just didn't register their name or whatever. So they go ahead and they move on it and they register the name. And then that church contacts them and they're all angry. And they're like, why don't you do the Christian thing and, and give that back to us? He's like, why don't you do the Christian thing and let us have it? <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that, that was the other thing. Bob was constantly being sued. And, you know, when you get sued and you're getting sued on a personal level, all your assets, your family's welfare, everything's on the line. But that didn't stop Bob. He was he was fearless and he would he go after these people online. It's just he's just amazing. So one of his stories that he he told me was uh, when he got arrested by he was flying into like Nebraska or Lincoln or something like that, and uh, he was he was in the media because he spanked his son-in-law, and so the cops uh, uh, like the son-in-law or whatever called the cops or something like that, and it was turned into this big ordeal, uh, and uh, and so he's flying into this other state. And they arrest him as soon as he lands on at, on the ground in the airport. And they take him to the police station and they're like, you better lawyer up. And he said, no, I don't like lawyers. Then they're like, <laughs> they didn't know what to do with that. So he's like, they're like, you want to talk? He's like, I'm not going to talk. I, I don't, I'm not calling a lawyer. And so they didn't know what to do. And so they just had to like, let him go. <laughs> yeah. But Bob, Bob spent months in jail, you know, on the, uh, abortion side. Yeah, so here, here's Scott. DBC gave them a year to register the name, and then they did it. So it's like, you guys didn't <laughs> want to move on it? Says weeks after they got the name officially, they were actually featured in Westworld. If they hadn't gotten back, they'd have uh, some long five-word name. Uh-oh. Yeah, so it, it's it's good marketing, Den Denver Bible Church. It was, it was a good good claim by them. But I just think that's funny. Yeah, how the reversal of everyone, everyone's like, if you're a Christian, you'll you should do this. And it's it's always like this self-serving, like, like uh do 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 whatever I want you to do, or else you're not a good Christian. <laughs> yeah, and mostly it was people that were unbelievers that telling them what a Christian should do. Yeah, it's like okay, okay, but people fall for that. The Christian church has been led that way, and the <laughs> Christian church is so so feminine. It, it's it's just terrible that they're always cowed by these people that are saying the Christian thing to do. And Bob, he'd come right back. He'd stand up. He would be a man, you know, practice Ezekiel sixteen and actually practice love toward these people. Yeah, he was really nice to these people, to their faces. Uh, he, he was telling me this time, uh, he, he was at this uh, abo abortion protest, and this guy came up, and he was just uh, being very vicious and mean and yelling at him. And he and uh, Bob Andrews like, uh, sir, you're, you are a homosexual. And the guy's like, what? What? What makes you think that? He's like, oh, well, are you? He's like, yeah, but <laughs> like he was instantly able to recognize the level of viciousness because this guy was showing was kind of inspired by this 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 lifestyle. Uh, frozen now. Yeah. 
Bob, Bob was really good at that. He, he knew people. He knew how to handle people. I was, uh, I was totally impressed. And he, you know, he, he got on those tangents, like you say. That just drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he'd do a, bi a Bible study and he'd like touch two verses and the rest of it would be like stories and allusions and illustrations. It's like, ah, oh, can we some more? Well, even go to other parts of the Bible, you know, that and then he, he had the book about the tree of life. <laughs> oh, that, that one just, every page I read that, I just, I mean, he had the best book in the world, The Plot. I really think it's a good book. But Right. So you're probably thinking of, of his audio, audio program, Tree of Life, in which he, he claims that the description of a tree in Ezekiel is the Garden of Eden tree, and it was like a 20-story tree, and uh, he has, and they cut off the branches and the branches are falling everywhere. And as people trying to, after the Garden of Eden, come back and destroy the Tree of Life, um, it's something like that. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting, but yeah. like, likely not, likely not accurate. <laughs> it's part of his intuitive nature, his intuitive genius that he comes up with stories like that. But, but everything that he had was basically solid his his arguments against evolution his 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 bible studies he, he's a solid guy and he's going to be sorely missed uh, irreplaceable here so i just had to say that in your program and i know i look tired and like i'm falling asleep but really this is the way i normally am <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's one. I went to a conference once with Bob, and some lady came up to him, going on about on about some conspiracy theories. He is so patient with her, and after she left, uh, he told me that she was a nut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went. He went. He would often let people just say stuff and just kind of agree, and then later is like, ah, no, don't, don't pay any attention to any of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the polite thing to do, and so it's pretty funny. Yeah, like that uh, Tom story, in which Tom said he saw a UFO, and Bobby Nearer later is like, "Yeah, probably, probably not." And uh, well, there was a uh, somewhere one of Bob and your maybe his radio program, his episodes or something. He's talking about moon landing conspiracies, and he's like, "Okay, it doesn't matter whether this the, the moon landing conspiracies are true or false." But if you're at a job interview and they ask you if we've ever landed on the moon, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, they were always telling Bobby was in one conspiracy or another, so he he got that shoved at him a lot of times. Yeah, the, I think the term conspiracy theorist was uh, championed by. Uh, the FBI and CIA in order to discredit their their enemies in in the, like the 60s. I don't know the name of the program, but uh, that's that's now exposed through Freedom of Information files that that was their program. They, they, uh, what is it? Mockingbird, Operation Mockingbird, in which they were embedding themselves, and they still do, with journalists and reporters to push their preferred narratives. And so it's it's been used as a weapon. But lately, lately, it's, it turns out that conspiracy theorists is losing losing its bite, and people are like, "Well, maybe some of these conspiracies actually are happening." Uh, vaccine passports, uh, that that's not just a fringe Alex Jones 
Alex Jones talking point these days. It's like, yeah, actually, some some of it's coming true here. But all right, any other closing thoughts? No, I just I just want to say, Bob is going to be sorely missed. He is mm. one person who was genuine. He did a lot for Gotti Week. He went a hundred percent. There was no, there was never any equivocation, and everything he went off, he went a hundred percent in that direction. So we're going to miss him a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that uh, we'll be closing down our program. If there's uh, no other comments, um, again, um, uh, I miss Bob. He was he was a friend of mine. Had a lot of good times with him. I w wasn't super familiar. I, I I didn't live in Colorado or Denver for my adult life, but uh, my interactions with him were pleasant. My last interaction with him, of course, was um, I think think the beginning of last month, where he called me up before the Warren McGrew show and uh, talked about who Warren McGrew was. And then one of the things he tried to do was, it was pretty funny, is uh, we were talking about my open theistic uh, chart, open theists and wh where they rank and what positions they have. And he said, oh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for, I do appreciate where you put me on that chart. And so some people get really angry about this chart, but uh, he, was, he was very grateful for it. But he's like, why did you put dispensationalism and covenant theology in non-trending position? Because dispensationalists are pretty biblical. I'm like, like Bob, Bob, if people already hate me over this chart, uh, if if there's like covenant theologians and I say they they are not biblical, that's it. That's that they, there are legitimate people who legitimately believe the Bible and prioritize the Bible who are also covenant theologians. So I would. To, to say that covenant theologians trend away from the biblical side, it's like, I can't do that. I can't do that, Bob. And he's like, yeah, but dispensationalism is, is the biblical position. I'm like, okay, I, I get that. But there are people who legitimately prioritize and believe the Bible who are, in fact, covenant theologians. Ah, that was pretty funny. But uh, he's a good guy. He's, he's always happy and always pleasant to interact with. Uh, He'd go out of his way for anyone helping out all, all, all these stories. Remembering Bob Enyart's stories is all him helping out people, being kind and gracious and and just loving life. So <laughs> let's see here. Um, there was a YouTube video exposing, oh, the John Bonet incident. So uh, Enyart was, John Bonet Ramsey was a beauty queen, like a child beauty queen, who was in Colorado. And she was murdered by her parents. They killed her. Um, it's an O.J. Simpson situation in which they say, oh, the, the parents didn't actually kill him. It was just some random other person. And the, and the But the parents were like super guilty. Like, for example, when there was a time frame where John Bonet Ramsey went missing and there was a ransom note sent to the house. And when the inspectors were there waiting for the ransom phone call, the family, the mom and dad were just going about normal routine, like doing the dishes and stuff like where normal, rational, concerned parents would actually be freaking out and waiting in anticipation for that phone call, that th their actions and attitudes uh, portrayed that they, they, had, they had none of these concerns. They're, they're like the Casey Anthony's of the world. They, they're, they're like sociopaths. But what happened was the body was found in the basement of their house. Um, she had been strangled and killed. And uh, uh, Bob Enyart worked 
he he interviewed people. He brought this to the media's attention. All these facts about the case and how John Bonet Ramsey's parents killed her. And so, it's sometimes when you talk about things like this, you attract your fair share of lunatics. And there was some random individual who like went to his church for a little bit, I think, and then uh, got hooked up on like drugs or something, something like that. Um, just kind of like a stalker would uh, go to all his Facebook friends, Bobby and Yurtz, and, and I was on Facebook too. And so I got one of these messages. Oh, Bob Enyart actually killed John Bonet Ramsey. Oh yes, I'm sure Denver talk show host, Christian Pastor, uh, found out about this teenage or this this child toddler beauty queen and went to her house, broke into the basement and strangled her. Uh, brilliant, uh, great, gold star, good deduction. And so the John Bonet conspiracy was created by someone who was previously went to his church. Yep, but was mentally ill. Yeah, very sad. I believe he ended up getting a restraining order. That's one of the things about Bob Enyard's church is sometimes the fringes of society are attracted to that type of activist type lifestyle that Bob was engaged in. So uh, you'd meet interesting characters at his church, which which are on on the spectrum socially. And so um, mentally ill individuals spreading rumors, claiming, claiming that uh, Bobby Enyart killed John Bonet Ramsey, which in fact, it was 100% it was the parents. And then guess what? They write, write a book about it. And uh, what, what do they call it? They call it like innocent lost. Remember OJ Simpson wrote a book about his murder? Well, they wrote a book too. It's called like Innocence Lost. And, and uh, who's on the cover of that book? Oh, they put the picture of themselves, these sociopaths, these murdering sociopaths. Uh, if anyone's ever seen South Park, go pull up uh, Butter's very own episode. And in it, there's a scene where, well, it, it's it's all about, <laughs> it's not safe for work. It's not for like kids. But uh, the premise of the episode is there's this mom and dad and son. And the mom finds out the dad's having some sort of a homosexual affair. And so she goes crazy and she tries to kill her son, who's named Butters. But he doesn't actually get killed. And she tries to drown him in a car like uh, that lady in Texas. And uh, But long story short, then they go on this press tour saying, oh, um, we didn't kill our son. It was definitely not us. It must have been some Puerto Rican guy. And then they get like a support group. And who's there? OJ Simpson. And OJ Simpson's like, yeah, I'm looking for some Puerto Rican guy too. And then there's the John Bonet Ramsey parents. And they're like, yeah, some Puerto Rican guy killed John Bonet. And then there's Gary Condit, who Gary Condit, who murdered his secretary or assistant or whatever. He's he's like, yep, yeah, I'm looking for some Puerto Rican guy too. And then they start doing the one of us chant. That's pretty famous from the freaks, freaks, the old black and white freak show. But it's a good episode. It's very, very cognizant of the world. South Park tends to be spot on, uh, off and on. They're, they're, they're directly spot on. But that was one of them. Oh, O.J. Simpson killed his wife. And uh, Gary Condit killed his secretary. And the John Bonet parents killed John Bonet Ramsey. But Grickitson, Greg, he writes, we could have been friends. You could have been friends. <laughs> he says, yes, you pretty much got it. Scott writes. But yeah, I did get one of those crazy messages from that lunatic. It's like, nope. Um, 
Sometimes people just say, say things. But we're going to be wrapping up here. We're at about an hour and 40-some minutes. Oh, thanks for sticking with us. And Clinton was a rapist. Don't forget that. Yes, absolutely he was. He absolutely was. All right, thanks for watching. Uh, I will uh, see you maybe next week. I don't know.